Spencer, did you ride your bicycle this weekend? I sure did, Fred. In fact, I was in France doing a little bit of riding with uh, folks from Canyon. They got some new new bikes coming out. You're going to have to stay tuned for that. But uh, it, was, uh, it was a good one. If you could see me shaking my head at Spencer right now, listeners, I want to go ride my bike in France. Well, if you're not lucky enough to go ride your bike in France on the weekends, but you're still riding your bike, then you are the ideal customer for Health IQ. Health IQ is the sponsor of this week's episode of the Velenies Podcast. And Health IQ is the innovative life insurance company that works with healthy people like us, runners, cyclists, triathletes, and gives us a great rate on life insurance. Right now, they have a URL we can go to and get some more information. You got it. Just go to healthiq.com slash velonews and you get that free quote. And next week, Spencer will be able to rub it into the rest of us of some amazing place he has ridden. Yeah, where should I go for next weekend? Strata Bianchi's coming up. You go right in Italy. Maybe I'll go to Italy. Why not? I'm still shaking my head. <laughs> okay, let's get on with the show. Bike racing, bike racing, bike racing is back, Spencer. Uh, yes. It's Fred Dreyer with Velenews Podcast. Spencer Paulison sitting right next to me here at the Velenews World Headquarters. And Andrew Hood joining us digitally from his man cave somewhere in the wilds of northern Spain. Andy, what's going on? Good evening, fellas. Just uh, you know, getting into the week here. It was a good weekend up here in northern Spain. It's been a great ski season up here, so got away. Uh, watched uh, Om Loop on Saturday. Uh, made some nice tracks on Sunday up here in the mountains. I did the exact same thing, not in northern Spain, here in Colorado. Me and the throngs of Colorado skiers fighting the traffic to get to ski. But guys, we have a ton of bike racing to talk about. Bike racing is back in our lives I, I don't know about you. I spent Saturday watching bike racing on my couch with my wife and my dog just looking at me like, get up and do something. And I was like, no, Het Newsblad is on. This race is amazing. Yeah, be cool. Come on. We got to watch this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we had Omloop Het Newsblad cycling's op- opening day go on on Saturday. On Sunday, we had Kern Brussels Kern and we had Omloop Het Hageland on the women's side of thing and the women's Het Newsblad. And we also had the Tour of Abu Dhabi wrap up with Ageless Wonder, Alejandro Valverde, just finding another way to win a bike race. How does he do that, Hoodie? How does Valverde keep winning? That is the big question. Everyone keeps asking him that. And he says, he insists there are no secrets. He uh, Clean living. Said, again? Yeah, cleanly. He, loves, he said he loves his job. He loves racing. He has that passion. And he said, well, it's just the quality. I was born to do this. That's basically what his answer is. So, He's not done yet, man. 38 years old this year. He's still winning races. He's the Benjamin Button of cycling. You know, like when I was when I was uh, in my 20s, I'd always play that game of looking at like pro ball players and being like, oh, I'm the same age as this guy. But, you know, there's some tired old like reliever like pitcher who's in his mid 30s. And you think, how is this guy still like pitching at the major league level or playing NBA hoops? Cause he's like 35 and like Valverde is now much older than those guys. And he's winning these bike races. Pretty soon he'll be able to look at some of the young up and comers in the Peloton and be like, I am old enough to be your father. Yeah. Or he'll be able to look at some of the like masters racers in the U S <laughs> category and be like, yeah, bro, we're same age. Dude, you should, maybe you could do, do masters worlds. Oh yeah. Masters that'd be, worlds. That'd be pretty cool. That would be so much fun. People would love that. Belverde is sorry. He's even talking about racing in the 2020 Olympics. So get used to Alejandro. He'll be around for a couple more years. This contract goes through into 2019, but he even had a hint in an interview over the past week in Abu Dhabi. He wants to race the 2020 Olympics, which would be his fifth Olympic appearance. Cool. 
Jesus. He could do so. He could do a Madison team with uh, Davide Rebellin, and it would be like fast guys, fast Liege Bastogne Liege winners from yesteryear. Oh boy, going and uh, going and teaming it up. Problematic. <laughs> um, let's get to the racing guys. <laughs> First of all, let's get to Omloop Het Newsblad. Cycling's opening day. We we ranted and raved about this race last weekend because it's always so much fun to get the classics back in our lives, even if it is February and a lot of the lessons that we learn about bike racing aren't particularly applicable. But this year's Omloop Het Newsblad, I don't know, it was a particular joy to watch because of the change to the course. You know, as we talked about last week, the owners and promoters of the race added in the old finale of the Tour of Flanders, having the Muir and then the Bosberg and then the final run into Mirbeke, uh as the, as the finale for Het Newsblad. And I don't know about you, but from a watching perspective, as I was watching these guys head up to the Muir, it brought back all of these memories of watching, you know, Boonen versus Cancellara and Leif Hosta and all of these old Flanders races from the early to mid-2000s. I got a little bit, uh, I got a bit, a bit nostalgic. I personally really liked the new finale. Before we get to the action, let's go around the room. Did you, are you pro new finale or did you like the old Het Newsblad finale better? I mentioned this in the roundtable that we're going to put on velonews.com today, and and I think my I'm going to throw a little cold water on it and say it's okay. It doesn't do that much for the race itself. I, I think we saw that with just partly due to the headwind, but it's also, I think, in part due to the shorter distance of Omloop versus Flanders. The guys aren't quite as tired when they hit that. They're it, it didn't do as much for the actual racing dynamic, but yeah, it's fun. And, and the tension coming into it, you can feel it. You can sense the excitement, all the fans. Yeah, but I'm not like a 100% cheerleader for the Muir-Bosberg combo. Good point, Spencer, in terms of that distance. That, that is what makes the monuments uh, stand apart from these other races, that extra hour of racing, that, that final 50Ks that makes the Tour of Flanders, Robay, and Liège so much harder than a race like Loop. But I'm in, in uh, Fred's corner here. I think it's great that the uh, race organizers are part of that Flanders Classics group. You know, they are not afraid to spice things up. They're not afraid to really take these races, bring them kind of into a modern context without losing that historic connection to the races. And, uh, you know, it didn't finish in Ghent, which is my favorite city in Belgium. But if I ever had to live in Belgium, I would live in Ghent. So it's kind of a shame it didn't finish in Ghent, but hey, it started there. And I'm sure everyone went back again after the race was over. And drank like 90 Duvals. Yeah, it started at the Kipka, you know, it hit all of the Heligan, the famous Heligan. It finished the old Flanders route. I feel like this was about as Flemish cycling as one could get. Maybe if it, it started at Ilio Kaisa's brother's bar, which is right next to the Kipka, it would have been a little bit more Belgian. But uh, I don't know. I'm pro. I, I want them to keep it going. I, I just like having the I like having the Bosberg back in my life. Like nobody goes to the Bosberg anymore, and just bringing back all these old memories. I'm with you, Spencer. It didn't do much to break up the action. You know, we've seen far more selective Het Newsblads in years past, and I think there's a lot of things to blame for that. The headwind, the distance, the fact that, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, when we watched those guys race up and over the Muir and the Bosberg way back in the day, they were just a little bit stronger than the guys are yeah, these weird. days. I wonder weird. why that was. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they just, they just trained a little harder. Yeah. Um, but either way, I felt like it made for 
fairly dynamic racing. So let's get into the uh, the action of it all. When you think back to this year's race and the action that uh, that went on in that finale, hoodie, what was the decisive moment in your eyes when my, you know Michael Vraugen won the won the race? How did he do it? Well, it was the fact that he had two other Astana teammates in that group, a select group there, a dozen or so riders that came in for the finale. That really kind of tipped the difference in favor of those guys because they just had the numbers. And they actually played it pretty well. I mean, for a team that doesn't have that kind of classics DNA, those guys rode like kind of KGL Belgians. And the way Valgren came out there and it kind of attacked right at that run, right moment there in the last K and a half to go. Uh, coming off the move by, I think it was Van, Van Mark. Chapeau to those guys because you don't hear uh, riders Lutsenko in the finale of a, of a Belgian classic very often. And, and Astana was right there and really gave it to those guys. It's all about motivation, I think. If, if you if you were watching VeloNews.com, you probably noticed a story by, by you, Andy, about how Astana's maybe in a little bit of a rough shape right now. Maybe they're uh, trying to make sure they can stick around as a team. Yeah, Hoodie, you posted that story basically saying that Asana are in very dire financial straits right now and that there's a lot of pressure being put on them to try and win. Um, it sounds like they may, uh, they're, they're being funded through savings for the money. And what's going on with this team right now? Well, it kind of, uh, it was an interview that Vinukarov gave to some Kazakh website that was uh you know in t- today's day and age those stories kind of viral even when it's in a language we have no idea what they're actually saying <laughs> you, you put it through your google translate and you kind of get the gist of the story it sounds like that the sponsors are either delaying in paying their what they're required to pay so far for 2018 it sounds like the team's tapping into its Bank requirements were supposed to have bank guarantees in place. It sounds like the team's tapping into that to kind of cover costs. It was hard to get too much more specific information exactly what's going on. But reading between the lines, the riders, both Abu Dhabi and uh, Omloop this week, were saying they've been paid. But Spencer suggested maybe that's explaining why the team is performing so well so far in this early season. They've had a couple of wins. I think four or five different runners have won. So it's just it, man. When your job's on the line, you're going to be racing a lot harder. And maybe that helps explain a little bit of how successful Stun has been so far. I will say, though, don't be sleeping on Alexei Lutsenko. That kid is a real bona fide talent. I've seen him win some big races, and it's it, he, he's, I think he's the real deal. I don't know if he's quite a pure classics rider, but I think he's versatile enough, strong enough that he can go off the front on his own. He can win climbing stages. We saw him win Tour of Oman earlier this spring. Senko, more so than Valgren, to me, is it, he showed himself at Omloop. So let's get back to the action of the race. Spencer, same question to you. What do you think were the keys to victory for Astana and Valgren? They were just patient. They really were. It's you, you saw a lot of action in that final 30K or so. The announcers frequently were mentioning the headwind coming into this finale. As we know, as we were talking about the Mir-Busberg combo, very hard. And they just kind of kept their powder dry. They let uh, they let these attacks go. They let all sorts of things go. And I don't. I honestly think that the rest of the guys in the break should have been forcing Astana to do a little more work, especially when it comes to chasing down Stefan Mark when he went the went off the front of the mirror. Because otherwise, it's like, man, you've got a couple of riders here in this break, and they're just sitting in. 
Yeah, I'm with you. It's one of those situations where we saw a ton of action. So we saw like Lotto firing off bullets like crazy with with Tish Benut and with Tim Wellens with like 35k to go. And they animated things but kind of burned themselves out. Then there was a headwind coming into the mirror and nobody seemed like they really wanted to go off the front. But Astana, boy, if you saw that run into the mirror, they were just right there. I think they had four or five guys within the first 20 riders. Also there was Sepp Van Mark, you know, Team EF Education First, presented by Draypack, Pounding, and Cannondale. They did a great job of getting him up there. Van Avermaet, you know, all, all the major players are up there, but of all the major players, it seemed like Astana were the only team to have multiple riders. Okay, none of those guys is like a top, top, top favorite, but they're all right there. So then on the mirror, Sepp Van Mark lights the fuse and goes on this great attack, and boy, did he look strong. I think he had like eight seconds over uh, Stebar at the summit, and everyone's forced to chase. And still, back in that chase, you know, Astana have these three guys. You know, they're not leading the chase. They're not even second or third, but they're right in that group, um, right, you know, a few seconds behind some of the favorites like Van Avermaet and Stebar. And so in the headwind section in between the Muir and the Bosberg, when things came back together... Yeah, Astana, there you go. Three guys in that group. I don't think any other team had multiple riders in that group. Although maybe Quick Step had, you know, they had Stebar, and then I think they had Eve Lampard, who was yo-yoing off the back, but not in any real way. And as this group is coming into the finish, you feel like Sonny Cabrelli's probably the fastest finisher, maybe Van Avermaet, depending on who has the legs. But I noticed that Van Mark went for a move, Gatto went for a move. But I didn't see any move from Van Avermaet. I didn't see any um, real attack from Stebar. Stebar shut down a lot of stuff, but it didn't seem like any of the big favorites other than Van Mark were willing to put, you know, to really throw some attacks out there. So kudos to Astana for waiting and Michael Valgren for waiting for that perfect moment. I believe it was like 1.4K to go. Van Mark goes on a big move. Stebar shuts it down and everyone's kind of tired. Then Valgren just punches it. Yeah, I don't understand why Stebar is working so much. I think he needs to sit back a little more, a little too hungry. I yeah, yeah. Or I think he needs to let yeah let some of those other people close those gaps and then make the move himself. But you know, it's two hundred k. It's still early. Maybe what we saw from an action perspective was just a case of early season legs, and you know, maybe people just not wanting it that much. Maybe Stebar's coach gave him a little bit of a training objective for the day, and he had to get in that extra. The extra KJs put in some more uh, efforts there in the end to make sure he hits his numbers. Or maybe he hit his numbers and he's like, ah, sorry, guys. Coach doesn't want me to go over. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah could be. Let's get into it. So, you know, we talked about Astana. Uh, Michael Valgren, this is the, the biggest win for him. He's a Danish rider, young up-and-comer. Last year was his first Classics campaign. I didn't know that. Impressive. He, he seems like he has some chops to be a good Classics rider. Uh, Hoodie, do you know much about Valgren? And, uh, you know, his his background and what his ambitions are. Yeah, he's been bouncing around a couple of years now. He said that when he was racing at Saxo Bank under the whole Contador program, the focus there was really on the Grand Tours, on the big stage races. So he was kind of lost a little bit in that whole uh, part of his career. Now at Astana, he's getting room to move. Like he said, there's not really a big hitter on that classic squad. A lot of guys that had the potential to perform. And he just kind of took the ball and ran with it, right? I mean, that's that's what these young pros get that opportunity. They have to really go for it because a lot of times the team will give you that chance 
And if you play it uh, safer, you don't want to take that chance of maybe blowing up and getting caught and losing the race instead of sitting in the wheel the whole way. But he took that risk. He won. And the payoff is huge, not only for him, but for the team. And it bodes well for his future as the young guy is coming up. There's a whole new generational change in the classics right now. You're seeing suddenly guys like Van Avermaet are the old guys. And now a lot of young guys are coming up, and it's going to be interesting to see who really kind of emerges in this classic season. I'll tell you, there's one fresh face in that front group as well. You know who that was. Who's that? Wout Van Aert. Oh, my God. Cyclocross racer Wout Van Aert. I was waiting for him to get off his bike and hop over a barrier and ride into a field <laughs> and get back on. But no, he instead was just looking super strong. Wout Van Aert was in that group going up the Muir, was in the group in the Bosberg. You know, it's kind of a bummer that that breakaway group got swamped at the finish line by the Peloton because that erased the potential for having a good finishing result. But yeah, Wout Van Aert looking super strong. Man, it, I... I was wishing he he had followed that move from Valgren. That would have been a cool combo, those two riders, and I feel like it might have had a chance, too. And, man, yep, let's see more of Wout Van Aert in these classics. And also, <clears throat> Matthew Vanderpoel, I think it's about time for him to start showing up to some of these races. Yeah, I mean, it's, Wout Van Aert is looking that good on something like the Muir. You wonder how Vanderpoel would have done. He talked, uh, Van Aert talked at the finish line, and I saw some of his comments and basically chalked up his... Um, you know, the fact that he was feeling good, it's still close to cyclocross season. So he still feels like he's on pretty good form. He said he didn't really know how long that was going to last, but he chalked up his decision not to attack just based off of the headwind. And then also just a little naivete. he said he didn't think that the Peloton was going to come back and he felt he was feeling like he was going to wind it up for this, you know, save it for the sprint. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of those guys were probably doing that, but you know, we've talked about, Belgium's quest to find the next Tom Bonin and ooh, a name like Wout ooh. Van Aert has been thrown out there. That's exciting. And I got to wonder if our good friend Patrick Lefebvre is like calling Wout Van Aert or sending him flowers or <laughs> doing something for him uh, today, the two days after the race. Maybe Lotto Sudal Talk- should. They, they certainly could use a guy to get in that front group at yeah. this rate. They, they did not show up on, on Saturday at Omloop. Uh, Tom Bonin was the hype behind uh, Van Mark a few years ago. I think he won Omloop, I think in 2012, it might have been 2013. You know, he was really hyped to be kind of the next emerging superpower. He's been knocking around a few years. I think he missed a year or two with some injuries and some illnesses. But here's a guy who really needs to confirm that potential he has. Hoodie, I'm with you. You know, Sepp Van Mark looked super strong. I mean, he just ripped it going up the mirror. No one could stay with him. I was impressed to see Greg Van Avermaet having to get out of the saddle and kind of huff and puff to stay in contact with him. And, you know, Van Mark at the summit had like seven or eight seconds gap on Stebar. And I think that that really started actually about 10 Ks before the Muir when EF education first got Zepp Van Mark into great position. Um, We saw a number of their classics riders um, come from sort of mid-pack and ride Sepp up there. And, you know, with Van Mark looking so strong and with the team able to move him around in the pack, one ha- you got to wonder what EF's chances are in the classics. You know, they've all, last year we wrote about how they had all this ambition coming into the classics with Taylor Finney, Sepp Van Mark, and Dylan Van Barl. Now Dylan has left the team, so they still have these two guys. And I don't know, what's your assessment of uh, EF Education First Cannondale, Drapex, 
ambitions as a classics team? Yeah, I think that they're really betting on Van Mark this year to step up and really kind of fulfill that potential that he's shown in the past. Again, that's the little team that kind of always steps up and surprises every once in a while. In the last year, they got that podium at Robey. No one saw that coming because Van Mark was uh, injured and wasn't even in the race. We'll see. You know, it's it's still early days. I think we'll get a better idea coming to some races in the next couple of weeks, really which teams are going to be firing at all cylinders for classics. You can always guess it's going to be Quick Step, going to be Bora with Sagan. Like you were saying earlier, Quick Step was not really looking that great, that sharp in, in these first two weekend races in Belgium. You know who was looking sharp? Daniel Oss. Definitely. Resplendent in Bora Hansgrohe colors, making his big debut. Well, I guess he made his debut at the Tour Down Under, but he looked great. He made that front group. He was uh, right there on the Bosberg, and I think the question with him is, what does the addition of Daniel Oss mean for Peter Sagan, and what does the subtraction of Daniel Oss mean for Greg Van Avermaet? It's really good for Sagan, no question about that. And, I mean, hey, maybe you can suggest that Van Avermaet's not quite so impressive showing at Omloop could be in part due to the fact that he didn't have a key lieutenant to help him help him get into the position he needed to be and perhaps chase some early stuff. And who knows? I mean, just having Oss there with him would have wouldn't have hurt, that's for sure. Yeah, there's high expectations in the Sagan camp that Daniel Ose will kind of give him that extra pair of legs that he needs deep in these uh, longer monument races. BMC has tapped into uh, Jurgen Rollins to kind of replace Ose. You know, we'll see how that plays out for Van Avermaet. But uh, I spoke to Daniel Ose actually at the two down under last month or back in January. And what a cool guy this is. You know, he's like, you know, he's a rock and roller. He's really good friends with Sagan. They get along really well. They, in fact, they went out shopping for Ose last year. Sagan said, I want him on my team. And I think Spencer's right. could be a, a Danger for for Sagan going into this classic season. When you said they went out shopping together, I was envisioning them like going <laughs> to the mall together, like going to the sharper <laughs> image to look at throwing stars and perhaps like a medieval broadsword together, which <laughs> I would love to see that. Yeah. But, you know, getting back to BMC and Greg Van Avermaet, you know, Greg Van Avermaet won this race the last two years. He was in a position to win it this year and did not. He didn't look the strongest going up the mirror, but I don't think it's not like he was getting dropped. I don't know if there's any cause to concern here. Uh, but Hoodie, you caught up with Van Avermaet earlier this year talking about his classics campaign. So let's have a listen to your chat with Greg Van Avermaet. Here we are with Greg Van Avermaet, um, Denia. Now, you've been with this team for a long time. I think that's said the seventh time at this training camp. Yeah. Um, a lot of change for you from those days, kind of being the young pup uh, in the school lot, and now you're the big man uh, winning the way. What's it been like for you just kind of being a part of this organization and coming back here to Denia? It's like the start of a new season, but something kind of familiar at the same time. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like you say, I'm so many years in this team. I uh, came up as a helper for big guys like uh, Cadell, Husoft, Balam, Phil even. So, uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a long way and it feels a bit like a second home here. So I spent maybe uh, more than over a year for sure here, uh, everything together. And it's cool to finally reach my goal to be here as a team leader and getting some good results in for uh, for BMC. And, uh, yeah, it's been... It's been uh, hard work, but at, at some point it's also finally a dream that's every step getting more true and uh, even uh, realer and realer, so it's, um, I'm pretty happy to be here. 
Now, I think this time last year, you could barely walk. You were in crutches. <laughs> and then you went on to win uh, your first monument, have a great classic season. Does the fact that you're not in crutches now give you even more confidence going into 2018? Yes, a little bit, yeah. I think it was a good lesson that maybe you don't train, have to train that much like uh, I was doing before. So it gives me a relaxed feeling that uh, last year I still had to start my build-up and it went an incredible year. So uh, it's just uh, stay relaxed, enjoy the moments, train hard for sure, but uh, don't do too crazy. And uh, I think uh, this helped me just to be to be uh, even more relaxed this year and uh, we'll see. I think uh, the year went amazing with some some special wins for me because uh, it, it was always hard to win for me in, uh, in, in Flanders in my region and uh, it finally came out so it was, uh, it was a, a season I will never forget and hopefully I can, I can build on, on this again uh, this year. What, what actually happened last year in terms of you just kind of breaking through to get those wins, you know, racing in, in mm-hmm. your home country like that? Was it just uh, confidence or was it just the fact that you were so close after so many years and actually just kind of came together? What was the kind of the sensation that you felt last spring that was kind of different perhaps? Well, I think, yeah, it starts with one win and it started in Newsblood. You're directly off with the, with a big win and you you hold on with that and uh, yeah everything from that moment went perfect and of course at the shape I was on the on the good moment always there and the uh, team believed in me did a really good job always to put me in good position and uh, this kind of things helps finally to to get that win and uh, yeah I think uh, what changes is hard to say, but I think uh, it's it's confidence. What what changes a lot, and uh, once you're in this uh, in this mood, it's hard to get out of it. And uh, if uh, if it's a bad mood, it's 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 really bad. You don't get out. But if it's a good is it a good mood, it's really nice. You can stay in, and you can uh, you do some some nice victories. But even the second places were not too bad. I did uh, good Strade Bianche, and and in the end, I also was still was second in Flanders. So it's uh, uh, this is also what I'm pretty proud of. It's uh, it's a really regular spring, with of course uh, four big wins. Now, when you when you had that crash at Flanders, I mean, you guys were chasing Jubert. Did you just think that? I mean, obviously, you guys had him within range. Perhaps did you think you're going to be able to catch Jubert as that group working together coming coming up to him? Yeah, for sure. We were kind of uh, we tried on the target, but got back. In a, in a pretty big group and then you know you have to save it uh, till uh, Cuaramo and Batsuber to do the big jump and you go away with the, the three best guys which was on this moment uh, Peter and Oliver and I think uh, this was also happened until we crashed and uh, yeah neither of us especially me or Peter were not happy with only uh, second or third so we were we were going desperate to try to catch Phil which which I think we will, we will be doing but uh, at this point is also yeah some sometimes things happen normally you never nobody crashes on the, on the Quarmo you have a flat sometimes but crashing I never saw on the Quarmo but this is kind of part of the race and after the race you, you can only chase chapeau to fill because you had the balls to attack from far mm. and uh, the victory takes it, I, the, the winner takes it all and uh, yeah that's that what that what happened of course, there was a lot of emotion and a lot of deception with me, but uh, yeah, uh, it takes a few days and then you're over it and you try to focus on, on another race. Because I think you said last year when you won Robe, that was almost more of a surprise for you because that was a race that you felt like that 
the race that fits you, of course, is Flanders more than Roubaix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I was feeling from the beginning of my career. I did uh, Flanders Roubaix my first year, I think, as professional. And Flanders had always directly the good feeling. I said, this is a race for me. and it's, it, it will come one day to me, and uh, which was Paris-Roubaix. Always oh, the race of the most suffering and uh, the hardest race to, to keep believing that I can sometimes reach the finish. And then it was a big surprise for me uh, to, to, to win Paris-Roubaix. Okay, over the years it came closer. You cannot uh, deny that I was uh, getting better and better. I was fourth and third uh, already. So then you also know if, if one day everything goes good, you, you're able to win Roubaix. But I was always, uh, yeah, I was always more in favor of Tour of Flanders, which, is, which suits me better, I think. And I think you said earlier you won't race Liège this year. Um, do you think that it's still possible to win all five of these monument races? I mean, in the modern era, it's only happened, I think, three times in the history of cycling to win Giulia Liège plus the uh, spring classics. I think it's possible, yeah, sure. But you have to, uh, uh, you have to focus on it first. I've only one monument, so I cannot talk uh, talk about it. I think uh, if you start catching three, you can maybe start thinking because uh, then it's probably worth it to really go for it. But at, at this point of my career, I'm I'm just not far enough to to say uh, to say I'm able to win the five of them. For sure, uh, if you look my profile as a rider, I, I think it's possible. Also, Peter can do this, I think, and also Phil, because they are climbing pretty well and they still have a pretty fast sprint. And this is what you also need, I think, as a classic rider to win all the five monuments. But for me, it's just first try to focus on Flanders, try to win that one, and then there are still three really hard. Milan Sanremo is a big lottery. Then you have uh, Liège and Lombardia are probably, uh, for my type of rider, the, the hardest to, to win. So I'm far away from that. Now, when you were growing up, I mean, your family pedigree is cycling. I think your grandfather as well as your father were pros. Um, but you started playing football and soccer, right? Yeah. Why, why was that? Did you not want to become a cyclist or you just love playing football? No, I love cycling from the, from the day uh, I got my first bike. But I was also pretty good in playing football, getting on a high level, and that's how it is. If you're pretty good at it, you keep the same uh, same sport. And uh, I was not really thinking anymore to get a cyclist. But then, yeah, some sometimes didn't have my my position in the teams. It went harder and harder to to be uh, to play, and losing my first spot in the in the goal. And then you try to search on new things, and that's how it went. I tried to to do one race, fell directly actually in love, and uh, I was really good at it. So tried to focus on that and then yeah I think it was a really good decision to, to go to cycling because it, I think it, it fits me better in uh, my physical capabilities. Because I remember there's a famous photo I think of uh, your father holding you as a baby with uh, Greg Lamont. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Have you seen that photo before? Yeah yeah I looked yeah. it up because I, I met uh, Greg Lamont two years ago in the tour I think and then I said yeah I was, I was already uh, with you and uh, he was surprised that I was saying this so I looked up the photo, checked it and uh, let them see also with Indrain. Last week I was uh, with them, Michael Indrain, so I was a big fan of, of cyclists already. And uh, it's pretty cool then you, if you can uh, grow through and get, first of all, professional by yourself. And then, uh, yeah, like it's going now, winning some big races is, makes it even cooler. There's probably some baby out there that's had his photo taken with you, the Olympic champion. And maybe in 15 <laughs> years from now, he'll be coming back to you and saying, hey, look at this photo. 
<laughs> yeah, let's hope. Huh? That's cool. I think it's uh, it's always nice to have some kids around, and that's also what I remember from myself. And I always they try to take care of, of uh, kids and uh, people around if they want to have just a photo. It's uh, just sometimes a kid's dream to that you can realize in a in a few seconds. And I think we have to be aware of this. We have to be uh, play first of all an important role that still uh, uh, people want to start cycling and uh, I think we are, we are always a kind of role model for uh, for the younger people alright Greg thanks for your time appreciate it thank you right. well there you go Greg Van Avermaet I mean I still have him on my short list for Flanders and Roubaix even if his team perhaps is not as strong uh, Hoodie what do you think he's capable of doing this classics I mean, it's Flanders is what he wants. He's this, there's probably no rider in the pack right now as obsessed with Flanders as Van Avermaet is because he's won Roubaix, so he's got the monument. He's won the Olympic gold medal. And he says ever since he's been a little boy, when that, that famous photo of Greg LeMond and his dad holding him as a baby, he's been dreaming about winning Flanders ever since he could probably put food into his own mouth. You know, it's, it's, it's in part of who he is. And until he wins Flanders, he'll feel like his career is really incomplete. We're just saying something about what Flanders means to uh, our riders from Belgium because the guy's won the Olympic medal. He's won uh, stages in the Tour de France. He's had the yellow jersey. He's uh, won the Olymp- He's won uh, Roubaix. But man, for him, it's Flanders or nothing. Yeah, when I was in uh, Belgium last year for the classics, went on some bike rides, and you just see so many guys riding around in the full BMC Greg Van Avermaet team kit. It's just what you do if you're a phlegm in 2017. You put on a BMC kit and roll around and pretend you're Greg Van Avermaet. We had some great women's racing go on this past weekend. We had the women's version of Omloop Het Nusblad. We also had Omloop Het Hageland. Um, Spencer, you know, give me the up, update us on what happened here. We had some great finishes and some uh, exciting races. Definitely. The Omloop had no splad race was, I think, a real shocker because Christina Sigard, this uh, woman who rides for Team Virtue Cycling, which is one of the lesser known teams of the women's peloton, came out with a big sort of shocker of a win. And um, also of note, uh, American Alexis Ryan, the Canyon SRAM team, was second in that race. And then uh, for the for the Omloop Het Hagelon, which is, or Van Het Hagelon, if you'll excuse my butchering of Dutch, Ellen Van Dyke coming out with a win for Sunweb, which is also uh, interesting to see in both cases because uh, there weren't any Bulls Dolmans riders on either Ooh. podium. And I, I, you know, to be fair, it's not neither are World Tour races, and uh, their teams that they brought to those races were relatively good, but they weren't the A teams necessarily. It's still early and everything, but. You kind of would have thought, though, that Bulls would have at least gotten a ride around one of those podiums. And, hey, we said this before, we're hopeful that Canyon Tram bolstering its roster, Sunweb bolstering its roster, maybe we'll see uh, a little more of a challenge to Bulls-Dolmans, which has really dominated the Women's World Tour for the last few years. I think it's really ex- exciting to see Ellen Van Dyke riding this well this early in the season because the strength of Ellen Van Dyke is directly... Uh, it impacts the finish of Corinne Rivera. I That's feel like exactly in some true. of these races, you know, she famously helped tow Corinne Rivera back to the front group at Flanders last year. And Corinne Rivera, I believe, was right there in the mix in the racing this weekend, too. She didn't win the sprints, but was sort of right there, top five, uh, top 10, I believe. So it is exciting to see uh, Sunweb putting it together this early because Women's World Tour, starting this coming weekend, 
with the uh, Strata Bianca. That's right. We will get to that later, but also it's notable that Sunweb will be starting friend of the show, Ruth Winder, for her first uh, Women's World Tour race with Sunweb on uh, Saturday. All right on. Looking forward to that. Good luck to Ruth, friend of the yes. show. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on. Abu Dhabi Tour, guys. This is a world tour stage race going on in Abu Dhabi. And, oh, man, Alejandro Valverde was mentioned at the top of the show, came away with the win. Uh, This was an interesting race because there were a number of flat stages, sprints, flat finishes, a time trial, and then the uphill stage, the uphill finish, which Valverde won. This was also interesting because this was the debut race uh, for 2018 of Tom Dumoulin, Defending Giro d'Italia champion, world time trial champion. And guys, you know, we've talked before about the curse of the rainbow jersey and, you know, kind of laughed about how there are these examples of guys who win worlds and then have disastrous following seasons. I'm thinking of like Igor Astorloa and <laughs> Rums, you know, some of the, some real turkeys of the past. Oh, really? Yeah. Tom Dumoulin is not a turkey. He's no. an accomplished racer. We expect big things out of him. But boy, the curse of the rainbow jersey struck him three times this weekend. So the first happened was as he was uh, warming up and doing recon of the time trial course and his derailleur stopped working. And so they had to like take the bike down and get him a new bike. Then during the actual time trial, the same thing happened. He had derailleur problems, shifter problems. Ooh, throwing uh, throwing the components monster under the bus. He there. was super pissed off, and he ended up losing. You know, uh, Rowan Dennis won the time trial. Congrats to Rowan Dennis. And then the third strike, the third unlucky mechanical happened during that final stage, just as the Peloton, I believe, was coming to the climb. And he had another mechanical, and that's where we got this wonderful YouTube clip of Tom Dumoulin just melting down on the side of the road. It was quite a nice tantrum. It really... Oh, man. There was a bike throw. There was arm waving, head bobbing. It was pretty dramatic. Head shaking. He's usually a pretty taciturn guy. That was was pretty dramatic. Yeah, it was. I mean, this is the guy who, like, had to... You know, go number two on the side of the road during the like most pivotal moment of the Giro and just seem cool as a cucumber. Like, yeah, sure, that's what you do. You rip off your jersey and go number two. It's fine, no problem. <laughs> and here he is, just like he was quite dramatic. I will yeah. say that I, I can only imagine what that sensation must feel like, but he was very dramatic with his bike throw. I like this side of Tom Dumoulin. I like seeing a little passion. Let's, uh, yeah, let's let's keep it going. I want to see this. I, you know, a, a great champion like that hoodie. Melting down on the side of the road after having all these mechanicals. I mean, is this going to be like impacting his confidence going forward? What should we make of this? It's not going to impact his confidence. No, I think it's it just puts in that top 10 great bike throws in cycling history. We've seen a few of those videos already make it out there. It just shows us uh, really like what Spencer was saying. It shows his passion, right? I mean, the guy wants to win everything. And I think his confidence is bolstered after what happened to him last year. You know, winning the world title, winning the Giro. So him coming into the Abu Dhabi... Him throwing his bike in a sports attack in the desert highway shows to me how much his confidence has improved and how much more he's faced his own level and he expects everything to be at that high bar. Oh, man. I Look, I, I hope that guy rebounds from that one because just tossing the head around like that, tossing the bike... Yeah, this is just the Abu Dhabi tour. I mean, it's a world tour race, but come on. I mean, That's it's, true. <laughs> I think he'll. I think he'll survive. He'll are, be. He'll be okay. Are we going to have to add this one to the blog of the best bike throws? We, maybe we should. Yeah. That, that might be a good one to add. It's not like the the throw itself wasn't. 
you know, world class. It wasn't the type of thing you'd see in like an Olympic event of any sort. But I think the the emphatic nature of it is really what made it memorable for me. And and the fact that he threw it sort of drive side against the concrete barrier. Yeah. So maximum damage potential there. It's not like the Bradley Wiggins where he, you know, gently rolled it up and it somehow leaned against the side of that wall at I forget what race that was, but that was that was one of the most gentle ones. This one was aimed for destruction, not quite Kittle level though, where you know Marcel Kittle just like Thor smashed his bike directly onto the pavement in that one sprint. I'm with you. I felt like the the arm waving that went on before hit before it really spoke to like this guy is going to smash his bike in half. But when the bike throw actually happened, it was a very it was like big swing of arm followed by delicate toss. Yeah, you know, the arm waving will definitely earn him some artistic impression points with the judges, and that's I think true. that's really nice. But yeah, the, the throw itself, maybe a little weak. Uh, certainly, he could he could do to improve his upper body strength, I'd say. Not exactly the quadruple axle no, of bike no, tosses. No, and so. certainly not like along the lines of a Bjarne Reese where you like huck your bike off into a field for maximum distance. I mean, that was probably 15-meter throw at least, and that's uh, that's really the gold standard when you're talking about distance for these bike throws. Well, hopefully Tom Dumoulin will not have more opportunities to work on his bike throw. Mm. We wish him the best shifting luck going forward. Indeed. Valverde, ageless wonder. He has said that he wants to come back and win more classics races, more Ardennes races. Is there any reason why we should not just pencil him in uh, to win Liège and some of these other races this year? I'm going to say that when I read that story we had last week about how he's confident he can win the Ardennes again this year— I was a bit skeptical. And winning Vuelta La Valenciana, that lower tier Spanish stage race a few weeks ago, to me was, it was good, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a race on home turf in Spain. It wasn't quite as demanding as, you know, this race, Abu Dhabi, where you have to show up in that time trial if you want a shot at the overall. And and the finish on that climb was was no joke either. He beat Miguel Angel Lopez, which is, uh, you know, one of the climbers of reference anymore. And yeah, to me, Valverde proved that he was uh, more than just talk when it comes to that Ardennes uh, ambitions. Way to go, Valverde. Moving on. <laughs> you're, you're so enthusiastic. <laughs> I represent the room temperature take on Twitter, which was a lot of people being like, okay, all right. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> Kern Bristol Kern, mm-hmm. Sunday. Yeah. Another cobbled classic, cobbled semi-classic. Revenge race. Total revenge race. T- traditionally, this had been the Peter Sagan. I didn't win Het Newsblad, so I'm going to uncork one and dominate Kern race. Of course, Peter Sagan was not there this year, although he was there on the poster. Amazing poster. Yeah. God. We, we've covered that in thoroughly, but it still bears mentioning again. This race had some interesting action. There were a lot of groups that would go off the front in the finale, get like 10, 20 seconds. Nothing was really sticking. Came down to a bunch kick, and Dylan Gronewagen led the sprint out and won it. I mean, he dominated Arno Damar. It was not particularly close. And Hoodie, you know, we've written about Dylan Gronewagen a few times this season. He had a great early start to the season with some big sprint wins in the Middle East. You caught up with his team director, Sportif, though. I'm really curious what they think this guy's capable of. The team is not surprised by what he did on Sunday. Uh, they're very bullish on their young uh protege here their, their sprinter this is really the top dutch sprinter we've seen really a, in a generation and the team uh, had a chance to speak to the the ds today kind of get a little bit more background on on a uh, grown wagon and and what it, what the team's ambitions are and they're building a big sprint train around him with the idea of coming to the tour de france this year 
with uh, the idea of him really emerging and establishing himself as one of the top sprinters in the peloton. Quite big ambitions for a young guy, only 24 years old. But man, that sprint victory last year in the Champs really told and revealed how much quality this guy has for him to survive. It was the second Tour de France for him to survive all the way last year, get to the Champs. If you remember that, that sprint last year, it was a long sprint. He beat Greipel, you know, really showed some deep quality there. And they're saying that this guy is just improving by leaps and bounds, showing some very uh, positive improvements in his power numbers. And the guy they keep comparing him to within the team is Marcel Kittle. They think that he can be as strong and as fast as Kittle and really emerge as the dominant spinner in the next couple of years. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I was just so surprised when he won on the Champs last year in the Tour de France. And I guess I, I guess I missed out on that one. He's definitely been an up and comer, and that's uh, more than just a one-off at this point, you could say. Yeah, and you know he's he is like Kittle in that he's not a guy who typically survives even moderate climbs. So I don't know if he's going to be like a Milan San Remo type guy, mm. but he, you know, if he continues to have that fast, flat-out speed. You know, you wonder if that ends up changing the shape of Lotto and El Yumbo in general as a team. I mean, is this a team that ends up, you know, starting to build more of its support squad around things like the green jersey, around stage wins, around winning some of these big sprint stages? You know, that Lotto and El Yumbo in the years past, I feel like, has sort of straddled the GC maybe having a guy for top 10 at the tour or grand tour type team with with classics ambitions so now that they have this sprinter i don't know what does that mean for this team yeah i I think there's potential here and uh it's 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 nice to see them coming up too because i remember when they first came out with this team sort of in the aftermath of belkin and it was that team was kind of a doormat for a while there they really got it handed them handed to them the first few seasons but then you know turning it around here with uh you know not only Gronowagen but also of course uh Steven Kreiswick having some great showings in the Grand Tours but yeah to me Gronowagen feels like more of a sure thing to get some strong results and wins especially in those races to me Steven Kreiswick's more of a a podium finisher guy who can maybe win a few stages but not quite like Gronowagen yeah yeah well, I was just going to say they've tapped into a few riders already to build kind of a train for Groenwegen for the rest of this season and, and looking forward as well. This year, as you mentioned, Freddie's not racing San Remo. The idea is, is for him to really focus on a sprinting, and he will pop into these races like Ken Vogelbaum or Schilderprix that does fit his characteristics, but the idea is not for him to try to morph into some sort of classic Sagan-type rider. They want him to be a pure sprinter, pure power, and pure speed. Yeah, I like him for Ken Vogelbaum and Schilderprix. I mean... I, Milan San Remo, I think, is a little too much in the end there. He, that, that guy's thick like a milkshake. I mean, you can see it. He's a big dude. Eh, yeah, Chilek, he won that. Yeah, well, I don't know. He was kind of a he was a milkshake milkshake <laughs> type writer. Well, yeah, Mario Cipollini won it too. I mean, uh, what are you going to do? That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, we have a race coming up this weekend, the Strada Bianca. It's always an early season favorite. The guys and gals are racing around on these dirt roads. Outside of Siena, Italy, it always makes for wonderful photography. And the X factor this year could be snow because the the forecast this week has been for snow and cold temperatures. I know some listeners may have gone on Twitter and seen an amazing tweet Twitter video of Mikhail Kwiatkowski 
riding in Italy and like brushing snow off of his face. If he really wanted to preview Milan San Remo like that, he would have, you know, gotten in the team bus when the snow came in and then got transported another like 50K down the road to restart his training ride to really simulate what would happen like it did a few years ago when it got snowed out. So I guess Strada Bianca, we have a bunch of different riders and teams coming into it with varying levels of strengths. I think one way we can preview it is to just go around and pick our podium for Strada Bianca. Who wants to go first? All right, I'm going to go first. So, <laughs> as I pull up the start list, <laughs> I think that Astana are riding great. I really was impressed with Wagren and Gatto, but the guy I'm really impressed with is Lutsenko. Mm. So, I am going to put Lutsenko in third place on my podium. Oh, you're doing a full podium. I'm doing a full podium. Jeez, oh, I got to uh, do that too. Come I think man. in second place, I'm going to put the defending champion, Mikko Kwiatkowski, unquestionably strong, but I don't think anyone's going to let him get anywhere this year because mm. they saw what he was able to do last year. And in first place, I'm going to put Peter Sagan. I think that Peter Sagan is off training. He skipped this week of racing. He's coming out at, at uh, Strada Bianca. I think he's going to win. What about the women's race? In the women's race, I think that Bulls Dolmens is going to go one through ten. Oh, okay. No, I think the start list is like eh, six riders. A team yeah, no, I think uh, I would expect to see Bulls Dolmens come out and have a, a real strong start to the season. So, I I'm going to pick uh, Megan Garnier. Oh, okay. Yeah, nice. American Megan Garnier. It'd be nice if she could uh, get back on top of the podium like that. It's true. I agree. Let's see my men's podium. I'm going to say. I like Gilbert to be in there somewhere. I feel like he's he's coming around. Maybe maybe Philippe Gilbert for like uh, third, maybe maybe second. And then I would uh, I would say Van Mark just looking real strong. I would put him at third or second. And this is a very disorganized podium. It's it's kind of a free form type thing. Who's the winner though? I I don't know. It's uh, to me the winner. Well, I don't. I just. Don't, I, it's a little hard to say, but I do like Kwiatkowski as well. I, I might say Kwiatkowski for the win, even though he is going to be a marked man as the defending champion. I still think Kwiatkowski is a pretty safe bet, and uh, Sagan. Eh, we'll throw him in my wild card pile as well there. So. I hope that cleared things up for you because um, I know it definitely confused me. Who's winning the women's race? For the women's race, I think um, I think you're right that Bowles is a good pick. I would like to see Megan Garnier win. I feel like it could actually be, though, it could be Lizzie Dynan. But really, any of the Bulls riders could potentially be in that finale. Uh, Anna Vanderbregen as well. It could be a good pick as well. All right, Hoodie, who's winning this race? I have to agree with Spencer. I think Kubitowski, he's he's flying. He was very, very strong in the Agave, defending champion or not. He's, I think he'll just have the legs in that punchy finale coming into uh, Siena to win the race. I mean, uh, the podium's a crapshoot where there's probably five or six guys that have a chance. Stebar, Sagan, Van Avermaet. It's really just who has that punch on that last final ramp into uh, Siena. I think it's a small group as it always is. And uh, it's one of my favorite races of the year. It's just one of those, one of those uh, modern classics that's already been elevated to almost a monument status. I don't know if there's a way to add to the monuments list. I'm supposed to be uh, sacrilege to do that. But uh, Strade Bianchi is right there with the best races of the season. Sacrilege. That's such guys. Sacrilege. Bike racing is back. I'm so excited. I know. It was know. like, what? What was I to do on a Saturday? Um, like, go do active things. No. Go engage. You go hang out with my friends and family. Definitely not. No, I want to sit at home, 
watch a shady live stream and watch bike racing go on. Best. Best. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelNews.com. Subscribe to the VelNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VelNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VelNews. VelNews podcast is produced by VelNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the VelNews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Sold Drums. Drums.